Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's wintertime. When temperatures go down, the likelihood goes up that your furnace and other appliances go down with them. So don't risk a costly replacement. Stay comfortable with coverage on the appliances you depend on most with the Service Guard Appliance Repair Program from Black Hills Energy. It's peace of mind in a plan. Visit blackhillsenergy.com slash sign up to learn more. From Belly Up Sports and the Belly Up Podcast Network, you're listening to the Sports Stove Podcast with your host, Vince Stover. Welcome into today's Sports Stove Podcast, brought to you by Skull Candy and Blue Coolers. Today we have with us a very special guest, a legend in his own right, author of The Dream Team, Seven Seconds or Less, Golden Days, and host of the podcast, The Dream Team Tapes, and Kobe, LeBron, and The Redeem Team. Among other things, with us today is the one and only Jack McCallum. Uh, Mr. McCallum, thanks for being with us. That's okay. Nice to be here. You don't not going to call me Mr. McCallum all the way through, I trust. <laughs> no, sir. Not anymore. Uh, okay. <laughs> just first reference, huh? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, let's hear in 2000, or excuse me, 1981 started with Sports Illustrated, went through about 2008 full-time with Sports Illustrated. Um, I, I've been really interested. I listened to your podcast, The Dream Team Tapes, a while back now. And uh, was real excited to, to have you on to talk a lot about just kind of your experiences. I mean, you've been around the NBA professional basketball for a while now. When you got the uh, Dream Team assignment, what was kind of going through your mind? What was the mindset when you found out what was happening and that you were going to be covering that? Well, it was sort of a continuation. I had taken the NBA beat uh, in the mid 80s. I think my I mean, I had done a lot of NBA stories since 81. Sports Illustrated didn't really do that many, you know, believe it or not. So 1985, I took the beat full time. So by the time I got the Dream Team assignment, that was just sort of what I was going to do. The the more interesting thing is that um, I sort of was luck. Fortunately for me, we wouldn't, you wouldn't be talking to me 
or nobody else would be talking to me if I didn't cover that era of basketball. So it was sort of, I got in on this elevator that was gone up and, you know, I mean, if I had something to do with it, you know, Sports Illustrated might've been that much, but this elevator was on the climb because I don't think people your age or some of your listeners understand unless they read history, how bad the NBA was that the store uh, in the seventies, that the story of when Larry and, uh, Magic came in in 79 and Michael came in in 84. Charles, all those guys, Kim Olajuwon, Patrick Ewing, name it, Carl Malone, John Stockton, Chris Mullen. Uh, the story was we got to redeem this league, that it's a redemptive story. We have to lift this league up. So by the time they got to the Dream Team in 92, it was a polar opposite of what the league was when I started the polar. I mean, it couldn't have been any, you know, you couldn't give it, you couldn't give away ads to the NBA in 1981, 82. You couldn't, they weren't selling them. And by 92, it was the biggest, you know, story in the world. I mean, it's still not going to overtake football as a corporate sport, but so far as a place where you, have well-known athletes, your culture influencers, uh, your corporate crossover figures. That was the NBA, and that that happened in a decade. <laughs> that that happened. It happened more like in five or six years. You know, from eighty-five to you know ninety-one, ninety-two. So it really was extraordinary, and that's why I was you know glad to be, as I said, on that uh, elevator going up. Who was the biggest impact on that change? Was it Magic and Larry, or was it more Jordan? I mean, you say in 85 to 92, uh, seems to be kind of Jordan's prime to some Yeah, I, well, that's an interesting question. Magic and Larry changed the perception of the game itself. Why? Because they came in, and they were two unselfish players. Now, the Lakers were already good, but they weren't you know, they weren't what they became. They weren't the showtime. So Magic comes in and transforms this team to become this force in the West. Bird comes in with a harder mission. The Celtics stunk. The Celtics had gone down in the late 70s. So almost it seemed single-handedly. They came in with a style of basketball that seemed to speak to everything it wasn't in the 70s. Uh, selfish. Um, you know, part of this was a race issue that, you know, this is a complicated subject, but this, the perception of the 70s basketball, selfish, white fans didn't like to see black players, too many drugs, everybody played for themselves, blah, blah, blah. So Michael and Larry changed that like that because they come into the league, Lakers win the championship in 1980, Celtics win the championship in 81. And then they had this ping pong match all the way up. What Michael, all the way through the eight, 1989, what Michael did was then put this other element onto it of salesmanship, uh, the, 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 uh, the selling aspect of it, the explosion as a force of economics. The interesting thing is that really wasn't Michael. Michael was a hard worker. All these guys played 
you know, I think that's kind of the difference between, you know, I don't want to be one of, you know, you don't want to be this old guy saying, well, they played for the love of the game. But everybody plays for the, Steph Curry plays for the love of the game. James Harden plays for the love of the game. But these guys that came in from that period of time, all of them who I just mentioned, they sort of understood that they were still selling the league. And that's a big difference. You can't, by the time we got to Shaq, you know, you can't sell the fact to Shaq that, well, you got to, you know, do all the PR stuff because this league is struggling. It wasn't by then, but it wasn't because of this work that, uh, that Magic and Larry and Michael and Barkley and Dominique and, and Isaiah and Mikhail and you know, all these guys came along to do it. So it was both of them, but I think it was two different things. I think Magic and Larry turned around the perception of how the game was played. That that it wasn't a selfish game that you could share the ball, make your teammates better, and then Michael took the uh, the corporate salesmanship of it like a rocket ship. When you were uh, getting ready to cover that '92 Olympic team, the Dream Team, what relationship did you have with those players going into that? And then, kind of on the back of that question, um, what new relationships did you form with the guys on that team? Well. Um, I was fortunate because uh, I, like I said, I started covering a league, well, in the early '80s. But let's say as a beat in '85. So by that time, I had by the time of the Olympics, that's seven years later. I had done, you know, eight stories on Michael. I had done six stories on Magic. I had done five stories on Bird. Uh, I had done four stories on Patrick. I knew him Ewing back in college. The funny thing was, is that we were such, and I told Chris Mullen this later, Sports Illustrated was such uh, front runners that we so covered the champions that I hadn't really didn't have a relationship with Chris Mullen. You know, great player, but he wasn't on teams that was going to win the finals. Yeah. So I, you know, not being a beat guy, busting in there once a week, um, you know, I never really developed a relationship with Chris since then. You know, I would say in answer to your other question, that was one of the relationships that happened, uh, you know, with Chris. Um, David Robinson, I would say, became closer to. But the, the Olympics, the Olympics wasn't the place. You had to have had those relationships to get to people because the Olympics are very much of a, I know the Dream Team book looks as if, um, I was hanging out with those guys, you know, 24 hours a day in the players room. And point of fact, uh, that wasn't the case. The Olympics are very, 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 you can't go in the locker room like you do over. And I don't care who you are. You're not getting in there. Practices were more closed. Uh, but if I had to get somebody, I could get them. I could get Charles was a good contact. I could get Michael, but he wasn't coming out very much. So the importance of being in Barcelona was the fact that I had had a relationship with them before. And the fact that, you know, a lot of the reconstructing in the Dream Team book came in 2010, 2011, when I was doing the interviews that led to the book. Because, you know, interviewing these guys, interviewing anybody, you'll find uh, 20 years after the fact is really a good period of time. They're different people. They're at a different place in their life. They're, they're less guarded about talking about it. Um, so their perception of it changes. 
So I was really lucky with the Dream Team book that A, I had had those relationships relationships back in the day, and B, I hit them at a good time to be really candid about uh, what happened. Uh, you mentioned it in the podcast, uh, Dream Team Tapes, but Charles Barkley, he seemed to be the guy that kind of internationally getting once he was there in the Olympics was the guy that kind of really uh, brought in some extra attention, maybe to Team USA and the Dream Team uh, with all his going outs and everything like that. Uh, did you know Charles was that kind of person before the Olympics or did he kind of come out even more of a shell? He wasn't in a shell. In a oh, no, no, no. Char- yeah, Charles was never in a shell. Uh <laughs> I had done store. I left Charles out of my talking about people that I knew. You knew I knew Charles probably as much as anybody because he was always such an interest. Somewhere around here, I have a cover of a Charles story I did back in '86. And Charles, that ability, and I can't explain it. That ability that he has now on on broadcasting on TNT to be able to say anything about anybody contradict himself sometimes in the same sentence uh that was all there that was uh, you know you would look back at some of the stuff charles would say i want to get out of philadelphia i don't want to play with these effing guys i got to get a new team these guys suck get me out of philadelphia there was that half of them but then there was the other half of like i love these guys they're my guy you know i remember i did a story on them um in 87, I'd have to look up the year. And he brought like Scotty Brooks uh, to the interview, who was his teammate then, who was going to kind of through a little Scotty Brooks renaissance. He had like 10 games when he was great. And Charles brought him to lunch and said, nobody ever talks to Scotty. I want you to include <laughs> Scotty in this lunch. So he did He did stuff like that. And he never, he never changed from that. And because of that, he built this kind of unique little space that I, you know, I don't know who exists in it. I mean, people cut him up for, uh, people criticize him for his contradictory statements and stuff like that. But he is still a force in the culture and that kind of vibe that he brings to that show, which they all have plugged into, um, it just makes it work no matter sometimes if the logic doesn't work. But he had that the moment he stepped out of Auburn. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team, team ready. ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. The Isaiah Thomas stuff was interesting in 92 and around surrounding the dream team. Uh, you made it pretty clear that, uh, you know, that that was true that Michael said, I'm not playing if Isaiah is on this team. My dad has always told me, I mean, from the earliest ages, uh, you know, that, that story. 
Um, I don't know if you, I don't remember if you said it in your podcast or not, uh, but did you think Isaiah should have been on the team no matter what, or did you think, you know, you had to have Michael. So, so, so it was, there you go. Yeah. I mean, that's, we can have these arguments. You can have a discussion. If John Stockton, and let's face it, John, it was either John or Isaiah. I mean, let's come down to that. You can have a discussion about who was a better player at his absolute best. But this is a discussion in sports, you know, Tiger, Jack, Nicholas, you know, you can have this discussion who was better at his absolute best. I think Isaiah was better, but John Stockton, you weren't exactly picking, you know, you weren't exactly picking the, you know, the 19th kid on the team. I mean, Stockton is one of the greatest players in history and over a longer period of time was better than Isaiah, you know, didn't really get hurt. Uh, never, you know, hardly missed any games. Isaiah started to break down a little bit. So it was a pragmatic aspect. If if we're not going to get Michael, we can't have Isaiah. But I always say the interesting thing that was said to me was by Bill Lambier, Isaiah's great friend, another member of, uh, you know, the bad boys. Bill's, even Bill understood. He wouldn't really admit it. He understood not taking Isaiah by that time because of Michael. But he said, what if we picked that team? That team was picked in 91. What if we were picking it in 89 and 90? The Pistons ruled the earth. They were they won two straight championships. They were a dominant team. Isaiah, although he didn't wasn't MVP of the finals in either one, was not the kind of dominant player that Michael Magic Larry was. He was the best player on the team. Could we have left him out then? That is an interesting question. Tell you the truth, it wasn't hard to leave him out in 91. I mean, the Pistons had gone down. Isaiah was actually kind of beat up. Um, So if anybody says Isaiah should be on that team, I said, fine, that's a legit, you know, you can make that argument. I'm not going to argue with me. But if somebody says, oh, I would have picked Isaiah Thomas over Michael Jordan and tell him to sit, get the hell home. You wouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. (laughs) You wouldn't have done it. The team had to have three people. It had to have Magic and Larry for what they were ceremonially, and they had to have Michael. Beside that, they needed Scottie Pippen to lock down defensively with Michael, and they needed to have Barkley, who they could always go to to get a basket. The best player in the in the Olympics, probably was Charles. He shot like I'm not looking at. It, he shot like 65 percent. They just could do nothing with the guy. And Pippen and Jordan trapped everybody at midcourt. Nobody could get into their offense. Every everybody else. I'm not saying they were, you know, run of the mill. They were all great players. But that's sign of the core that you needed. And so you could argue, therefore, I mean, Larry wasn't very active during the Olympics. I mean, you didn't need him, you know, for the roster, but you needed him because of what he had done uh, for the league. Yeah, I know about that time in 92 was about when I was kind of getting into basketball. And, you know, my dad kept telling me how great Larry Bird was. And he was a Boston fan. And I, you know, and I just said, okay, but, you know, I didn't see much in 92 from (laughs) Larry Bird. And then later on was the internet 
progressed and I started seeing clips and games of him, I thought, oh, he actually was really good. <laughs> it wasn't just I, my dad. This wasn't just my dad talking. Yeah. And those guys also, uh, you'd be surprised from when you started watching the game. Well, actually, by then it was sort of, at that point, it was still sort of the same. But the game has changed. I don't think any game has changed uh, without changing the basic architecture of the game. Five players on a team, 10 feet basket, uh, court 94 by 50, whatever it is. And the number of three-point shots that were not taken. I mean, Bird now, Bird was probably the first superstar to use the three-point shot to be kind of known for it. He took like 100 threes a year. I mean, Curry takes more in 10 games, you know, than Larry took. Uh, so they were, you know, they were playing a different game. I, and my point of that is that Bird would have been up higher on the uh on the scoring list, as would Chris Mullen. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys like that. Stockton would have probably developed a three-point shot, but they just, you know, they just didn't take them. I mean, that was not the idea. So the other person they really wanted on the dream team was probably the lesser known of the really great players, and that was Mullen. Mm -hmm. They had this group of, we, we to, to play the game, we got to have Michael, we got to have Pippen, we got to have Barkley, we got to have one really good big man, whether it's Patrick or David, and we got to have Chris Mullen because somebody's got to shoot from the outside because their fear was in a 40-minute game, um, it's completely different. That's eight minutes less. Mm -hmm. Now a team somehow is within two or three of you and you're not shooting well, you know. So Chris Mullen was perceived as being a very, very uh, important part of that team because at that time, perimeter shooting and certainly three-point shooting was not the uh, valued asset the way it is right now. That's a good transition to your time in Phoenix. Um, how did the assignment come to, I mean, you're basically on the bench with, with Phoenix during a whole season. How did that assignment come about? It was just complete, uh, you know, it's probably the luckiest. I've had a couple lucky things. <laughs> I said it's already been lucky that I started covering this league in 85, but one of my good friends and good contact was Julie Fai, who was a Phoenix, uh, the Phoenix Suns uh, public relations person. Julie was around the league for forever. She got it. I think she started, she's younger, a lot younger, but about the time that I did, you know, she was a kid uh, running public relations, which is not an easy job. You got to know your stuff. Anyway, so I just had this idea and I told sports, I'm going to go spend a week in preseason, see how inside they'll let me get. Okay. So she said, sure, come out. Let me, let me talk to Mike D'Antoni. And I didn't re I sort of knew Mike, but not really that much. I knew Alvin Gentry the best. He was an assistant. I knew Steve Nash, but then again, not that well, you know, <laughs> but it seemed like a good, this was going to be the place I could do it basically because of Julie. Julie calls me back and said, yeah, Mike said to come out. So I went there the first week just of preseason, and I wrote a story for Sports Illustrated. And it was like, I mean, if you if you mess, he gave me complete access, complete. Once in a while, he'd say to me, Mike had two things. He'd say, Jack, I'd like you to keep that off the record. Or his other thing was, if you put that in, I'll kill you. <laughs> so that I had to really honor. The other one I kind of, you know, massaged a little bit. Anyway, so I do this story. 
and it's, you know, it's not my own horn I'm ringing. It was a great story. And if any sports writer can't write a good story out of that, you should really be doing something else. I mean, they gave me complete access. So I, the story runs in Sports Illustrated. People love it. And I wasn't even thinking much and about it. This is how dumb I am. And about five days after it came out, my agent calls up and said, people love this story. Do you think they'd be able, you think you'd be able to do this for the whole season? I said, well, I got to get permission from Sports Illustrated and I got to get permission from the Suns. So by this time, D'Antoni and I had become decent friends. So I called him. I swear this is response. I said, Mike, uh, you know, the thing I did for a week in uh, preseason, I want to now do for the next, you know, 35 weeks or whatever it is. I want to do a book on it. D'Antoni's response, yeah, sure, come on out. <laughs> that was it. That's how it came. And and you have to understand that there's certain places you can do that. Um, you can't do it in New York City. You just can't. It's just too much. You can't. The, the, you just can't do it. It's not. It's not going to work. Probably not going to work in L.A. Probably not going to work when Jordan was with the Bulls. I got about as inside as I could, and you know that was kind of a wall you couldn't penetrate. Per, uh, Phoenix was a perfect city. The coaching staff was a little bit looser. They were just beginning to feel who they were. They were on this way up to. They understood the power of positive public relations because they had just started to get it. They had revolutionized the league the year before was when they started out 30 and four or something, you know, 29 and four, some ridiculous thing. They had a team that was a little young. Steve Nash was the leader and Steve said, I'm sure Mike asked Steve and he said, okay, after that, he doesn't have to ask anybody, you know, if you don't like it, that's the way it goes. They had a great assistant coaches. Alvin Gentry, Mark Ivoroni, Phil Weber, and uh, Mike's brother, Dan D'Antoni, was just coming from high school. I knew Julie. I knew Jerry Colangelo. Actually, he had just sold the team, but to a, to a new guy. I don't even think they asked the new owner. And all of a sudden, I was just there. <laughs> I was just there. And Sports Illustrated thought that the inside look I would get was uh, more than made up for maybe two or three weeks when I should have been doing something else. You know, I would, I could use it. Like I would go to Phoenix and I would look at the schedule and maybe I'm supposed to do a story on uh, the Lakers are coming in. Well, then I would be able to see them in Phoenix. So I was able to kind of massage a little bit. I had to spend some of my own money, some of the advanced money to get out there. But uh, it was basically a dream, a dream assignment. I, I never could get that again. And I'd be surprised if anybody, anybody else did. Who was the most responsible for those, the success the Suns had during that time? Was it D'Antoni or was it Nash or was it a true combination of kind of everybody? Well, I think the number one, uh, I don't want to say it's number one, cause that's not, not kind of negative to, to Steve or Mike, but you have to understand what they were changing. The NBA was in such a need of changing. Now, the, the early part of the century had been dominated by Shaq and Kobe. They won three straight, 0-0-1-0-2. Mike comes in 0-3, I think, right around there. The Lakers 
were dominant because they were so good. Shaq and Kobe were so good. I mean, they they were just, you know, too good. It didn't matter who else was on there. But the league was still playing that kind of little bit slow. They they put the ball through, you know, they put the ball into Shaq. They played through him on a triangle. Kobe would be on a wing or Kobe would get an open shot. So they were still playing that, for want of a better word, a stodgy game of basketball. Uh, they were just playing it at such a high level because you had Kobe and Shaq and Phil coaching them. So the league was right for change. I think that's number one. As I said, number two, you know, and I said two minutes ago, the three-point shot was still looked upon like it was a curse, like you didn't do it. So the league was ready for change. But you have to say the number one factor after that was Mike, because he came in willing to do it. And you can't believe what was said. Everybody told him it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You got to play. This isn't this isn't the way to play. And what do we find by? They never won it, but by eight years later, uh, the Golden State Warriors are winning championships because of that style. And I'm sure you've you've played attention to the game that. Uh, the, what the Suns did back then in 03, 04, 05, 06, 07 would now put them in about last place in terms of pace of play yeah. and number of three-pointers uh, hoisted up. I remember early in this season the, <laughs> that somebody, I can't remember who the team, had left a playbook behind, had left uh, a scouting report behind they were going to play the Suns. And the scouting report said, there is literally nothing these crazy team won't do. That was what somebody else thought. But rather than D'Antoni, rather than say, get worried, wow, what are we doing here? He went, he loved that. Mm. He, that's what they preyed upon. We're doing something different. And later on, when I talked to Steve and uh, and Mike in later years, one of the things they they both insist is that the reason we never won it, and this surprised me, was not because we didn't play enough defense. It was because we grew too cautious, started to hear what everybody said, subtly slowed it down, hmm. subtly worked it around more than instead of taking that first good look three-pointer, that we started playing like everybody else, that we didn't stay true to ourselves. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. The Spurs were, because of Tim Duncan, the Spurs were an awful good team. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, no matter what Mike says, they didn't have anybody to match Duncan. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a guy who could get you a basket anywhere from 15 foot in, feet in and could play defense so that he guarded his man but also went out to guard pick and rolls. Very few big men did that back. I mean, Shaq never ventured beyond the, you know, the, uh, the area in the thing where you take three uh, charging fouls, you know, yeah. but Duncan was able to play both of those ways. They didn't have anybody like that. So I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know if they're right about that, but that was their insistence. We didn't play crazy enough hmm. that we got a little bit more with what was supposed to be the program. Do you think uh, it kind of leads me into this story, this question, I guess, with Amari Stoudemire, I feel like a lot of people don't realize how good he was 
because of his injuries and then, you know, didn't work out in New York and those kinds of things. So in your time there, what, I mean, what did you see about Amari and what could have he have been had it not been for the knee injuries? Oh, he was, he was just a monster. I mean, pick and rolls rolling down the lane. Um, and, and that was kind of, despite their reputation for three point shooting and picking up the pace, their dead play was Amari and Steve on a pick and roll. And Amari wasn't a pick and pop guy. He went down the lane. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't Kevin Durant. He's not going off here to shoot, you know, jump shots from the corner, although he could, I mean, he had a decent touch. He was barreling down that lane and he was just an unstoppable force. And I don't think people understand how early he was handicapped. And the reason I understand it was it was the first week of practice. I, I wrote that book, 0506. So this is like October in 05. That's when Amari got the microfracture surgery. Oh, wow. He was never the same. I mean, he had a lot of seasons after that, you know, some of the Knicks, and he was pretty good. But that was 2005 when he had that surgery. So who knows what we would have seen from the guy. I think he would have uh, – I think his game would have branched out. I think he would have turned into a, you know, a face-up player a little bit the way Tim Duncan was. He could do a lot of things. And he was a great kid. I mean, he was young. Um, I regret a little bit writing. I, I mean, I didn't really torch him, but I mean, there was this thought that he didn't work out. He didn't rehab as uh, seriously as he should have, <laughs> that he was a little bit of a wandering goofball and everything. But he was young. <laughs> you know, you can't, everybody can't be like LeBron James to come into the league as this fully formed force when you're 19 years old. Not everybody's Kobe. And look what Kobe had some issues, you know, mm -hmm. Kevin Garnett's probably not given credit for coming in out of a hard scrabble life in Chicago and sort of being this straight ahead monster who never got in trouble. Same with, same with LeBron. But you know, Amari had a real checkered background, uh, you know, nine different high schools or something. And I, in retrospect, uh, really enjoyed the time. He was a good, curious young man. He became a really sort of a seeker type of guy, you know, going to Israel and converting and everything. Mm -hmm. So I wish we would have gotten to see uh, at his full potential the 29 or 30-year-old Amari Stoudemire. Do you think, as they're talking about changing the rule back where guys can come straight out of high school, do you think that um, just with the way things are socially and things like that now, it will work as far as the maturity level of guys coming straight out of high school back into the NBA? Um, I mean, are we going to get guys like Garnett, Stoudemire, Kobe, those kind of guys straight out of high school? I mean, I think so. There's always going to be cautionary tales, but I mean, I look at it as a, uh, I look at it as a civil rights kind of issue. I just don't see how you can say might one year make a difference. It's funny just for the redeem team podcast. I was talking to, you know, Carmelo mm -hmm. did one year help you, you know, did one year at Syracuse help you. And I think the people that went to school for one year would say, uh, it probably did. I don't think anybody would say, nah, uh, you know, I wish I would have everybody that did that one year kind of thing and came into the league. Um, 
you know, would probably say, hey, I enjoyed it. I mean, they were, you know, big man on campus. Uh, probably had enough dates, let's put it that way. I'm sure they, you know, probably enjoyed some of their classes, enjoyed some of the, but I just don't think you can tell anybody that uh, they can't do it. And, you know, I just think you have to look at other sports. I mean, I always bring up the tale of Jennifer Capriotti came onto the pro tennis tour at 14 years old or 15 years old. And uh, can everybody be Chris Everett? the way that Chris Everett did it. Chris Everett was playing in the U.S. Open semis when she was 15. Could everybody handle that? Well, Jennifer Capriotti, who was a you know great, smart girl by all accounts, you know, had kind of a crack up by coming in too early. So you're always going to have it both ways. But I think some of the protections that the NBA has put in in terms of the G League and this idea of mentorship uh, – you're not going to take care of all the problems, but I just don't see how you can keep someone. Plus the fact I don't, I don't love the idea of colleges being one year training grounds. (laughs) I mean, that never, you know, all those coaches that used to say, I'd never take a one year guy. They've all had to change their tune, you know, um, because they figure the one year, if they can win an NCAA championship, Carmelo and Syracuse being the, you know, the great example of that. Um, it's a new thing. It's just, say, Patrick Ewing stayed four years in college. I mean, think of that. You know, yeah. the guys that stayed four years. But even back then, you know, Michael was three years. Larry really only had two years of college, although he was he was older when he got into the league. So I think it'll probably change uh, change back. Yeah. I live in Lexington, Kentucky, so that's a big talk. <laughs> oh, I would imagine. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Steve Nash, head coach now in Brooklyn. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk when he got hired. Oh, if he was whatever, talking about race and stuff. But I mean, Steve Nash is as qualified as a player becoming a coach as any player, wouldn't you say? Yeah. The one thing about I don't think people realize uh, the daily pressures on a coach. The the coach is the much more probably than a player. I mean, LeBron does his responsibilities with, with LA and I'm sure that I'm not around the Greek freak, but I'm sure he does, but players can hide a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, coaches can't hide. Coaches are the CEO. They are the outward face of the organization, even on teams where, uh, there is a superstar, you know, LeBron, um, Giannis, whatever. So I didn't know. The one thing about Steve that I wasn't sure of was that would he be ready for that? Because Steve was always a great guy to talk to and all that kind of stuff because he's smart and he looks at things and not only the game, but, you know, he can talk about him stuff off the court. But Steve didn't love that that idea of it. Mm. And I, I haven't now with the pandemic, not that I'd be doing it full time anyway, because I'm, you know, I'm not full-time anywhere, but I would have certainly been in Brooklyn, you know, coming to see Mike, coming to see Steve. Uh, I would have certainly been there two or three times, and all I can do, you know, talk on the phone with Mike, and, oh, Steve's doing fine. I haven't talked to Steve. Steve's doing fine. Yeah, he's doing well and all that, but I would have liked seen how that part of it, because that's an adjustment, you know, for a lot of people. The X's and O's, you know. I mean, Steve, you got a combination of Steve and Mike, uh, if you can't run your offense with them coaching Kevin Durant, 
uh, you know, now now James and uh, Kyrie Irving, uh, you know, I could concoct <laughs> some kind of offense. So, you know, they're gonna be they're gonna be pretty good. And I, you know, Steve's a smart guy; he'll understand what he uh, what he has to do, and I'm sure he'll will I'm sure he'll prosper. Just recently came out with the new podcast, uh, Dream Team Tapes, the second season, Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. Uh, just a couple episodes out so far. Uh, so without giving away the whole podcast, uh, what's something that you learned in the prep of this podcast that, uh, or you were enlightened to uh, that you didn't realize before you did the research and prepared for this podcast? Well, the reason I wanted to do it, and I'm, I'm doing it with J.A. Adandi, was like the Dream Team tapes um, was, you know, not due to me, but once again, because people love the Dream Team. I mean, it was really successful. They wanted to do another uh, podcast. And so I said, well, we got to do something with Eam in it, I guess, you know, Dream Team. And, you know, I have to do podcasts only beginning with Eam. Uh, I'm going to do ice cream podcasts the next time. But I wanted like another voice because. My my generation was Michael, Magic, Larry, Isaiah, Kevin McHale, Dominique, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Patrick, Dave. They were like, I felt they were my guys. Now, I knew Kobe very well. Um, you know, my last year covering the league full-time was 08. But I was there, you know, I knew Kobe from doing stories. And I, you know, knew LeBron, did the first story on LeBron. But I didn't feel like they were my guys kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of tape. The, the fortunate aspect of the dream team tapes was I had saved all these tapes from my book taping so that you were going to hear their voices. So the redeem team was going to be a whole different thing. And so I asked Jay Adandi who had been in LA, I think like 17 out of Kobe's 20 seasons or 18 out of his 20 seasons. And I knew Jay. And so he said, yeah, and I guess what I didn't quite realize was that what um, Jerry Colangelo, what the commitment was for those guys. A little history. We lost in the Olympics in 2004. We got the bronze medal in Athens. The international program, no matter what was going on in the NBA, had fallen. Uh, didn't have the right coach. Players weren't committing. The world was getting better. We were we were facing it not even being the number one world power anymore in basketball. So in 2000, right after those Olympics, David Stern puts his iron fist and foot down and says, we got to change this shit. You know? And I'm getting, uh, Jer I'm going to ask Jerry Colangelo, who was kind of, in the podcast, J.A. and I refer to him as the godfather. You know, we even have some godfather music playing when he comes on. And Jerry's going to take this program and he's going to be in charge and he's going to get a commitment. Well, what Colangelo did once after they hired Krzyzewski, they picked Krzyzewski over Greg Popovich to coach the team, was he went to, you know, LeBron, Carmelo, Bosch, Wade, all these guys he had identified. We need a three-year commitment from you. Now, he couldn't give him a contract, but we need, you got to be playing in the summer of 06 you got to be playing in qualifying stuff in 07 and you got to be in the Olympics in 08. So it was a total different ask that, for example, the dream team had had. Nobody was coming to those guys and saying, you not only got to play in Barcelona, you got to play in Atlanta in 96. So 
the commitment that those guys made to have America sort of reestablish itself was really, you know, very something special. And I'm not saying I didn't, it just didn't dawn on me that it was that kind of commitment that Stern went to Colangelo right after those 04 Olympics and said, we got to start uh, turning this around. The other thing I think was the, uh, I can't give away the whole thing, but it's interesting, you know, the way these national team works is not, although you pick your guys, you got to have a whole, you got to pick like 33 guys because there's going to be injuries. There's going to be reasons they opt out. There's going to be, you didn't see their play rise to the level you thought it would. So um, Kobe, for various reasons, he didn't play in the Olympics in 04. He had the thing of sexual assault alleged sexual assault in Colorado. He had injuries. He had the knee injury, which was why he was in Colorado in the first place. So a lot of things were going on. So Kobe didn't really get with that team until 2007. So now you infuse Kobe into this culture that had been kind of built by LeBron primarily, Jason Kidd, the veteran leader, Carmelo, who was although he's had a reputation for being difficult, was great as a national team player. Fantastic. Sort of realized he was the fifth option, not the first. And there's a lot of guys that are better like that. Dwayne Wade, uh, Bosch, if I might have mentioned. So you got this kind of tight team that had formed. Now you introduce the most volatile <laughs> element you could possibly – I'm not a chemist, so I don't know what that would – adding boron to – you know, some other kind of mixture that's already there. And it was very interesting to me. And the question I ask everybody I could interview was, time is running out. Uh, you got the ball. You're down one. I asked Jason Kidd, asked Darren Williams, asked uh, Chris Bosch. I can't remember whether we asked. I think we asked Krzyzewski, but he didn't exactly answer. <laughs> Would you give the ball to Kobe and clear out? <laughs> Or would you get LeBron a look at the elbow where he's got the whole court that he can pay? He can drive, he can take a three pointer, or he can find somebody else. What would be your option? So, the the larger question out of that is whose team is it? You know, is it Kobe's team or is it LeBron's team? And you know, we didn't get a unanimous answer, but it was pretty interesting. The uh, the answers that we got, and uh, they're in the later part of the uh, later part of the episodes. I'll tell you what, though, they needed both of them. Mm. They needed to win that to beat Spain in 2008 in the gold medal game. They needed exactly who they had, mm. which was LeBron, Kobe, Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade was unbelievable in that tournament. He was sort of the a little bit of the X factor because mm -hmm. very early. I can't remember whether he went to Shashevsky or Shashevsky said to him, as I look at everything, I'd like you to be the sixth man. And whatever it was, whether Dwayne volunteered or he said, that's fine. You know, he came into that game. And by that time, you know, he either spelled LeBron or Kobe and the floor is open. So Dwayne had his responsibility and that was to score. That was what he was going to do. And he was, uh, you know, fantastic throughout that uh, throughout that whole thing. <laughs> How much did the original Dream Team impact the competition that the Redeem Team had 
uh, internationally. No, oh, it's it's. Here was the the weird thing about the Dream Team was it started out. We all thought, and I wasn't smart enough to understand this at the time. We all thought, okay, what it's going to be is a demonstration of the abject superiority of the United States. That's what it's going to be beyond this marketing bonanza and all that kind of stuff and bringing excitement to the game. By 2000, maybe not 96, 96, they still rolled everybody. By 2000, it became clear what it was, was this challenge for everybody else in the world to get better. And I have a section in the dream team where the, the book where I just said, you know, we're all watching these massacres and going, why are they doing this? Well, 12-year-old Dirk Nowitzki's watching it in Germany. You know, 11-year-old Manu Ginobili's watching it in Argentina. Tony Parker's watching it in, in France. Heydu Turkolo's watching it in Turkey. And they're all, they're basketball players. And they're saying, you know, like to me, the game was demystified. Oh, look how good Jordan and Pippen are on defense. Or look at, uh, you know, David Robinson set that off screen that Mullen comes around on. Well, to a basketball player, it's sort of like we do that same stuff. This is, this is the game. These aren't like giants or something coming into the game. So would they just do it better? You know, but it's a game that we can achieve. We can get to that point. And by 2000, which was the Olympics in uh, Sydney, Australia, you know, we came within a three-point, missed three-point shot at the buzzer of losing to Lithuania. So... I just think it was, you know, the biggest impact of the dream team was not on the American team because that kind of culture sort of died out. It was worked for 92, kind of worked for 96, almost didn't for 2000, just getting this team of all-stars, different coach every year, not a set program, not a long-term commitment, finally fell on its back in 2004. Well, all that time, the the world is getting better. So at the point when Spain walked out for the finals in 2008, the gold medal game against the Redeem team, it was a pick em game. I mean, it was, you know, I think Spain had seven NBA players. I mean, they had the Gasols. You know, Powell was, Kobe always said Powell was the best teammate he ever had. You know, they had three-point shooters. And they had an eight-minute fewer minutes in the game where, you know, if they kept it close, uh, you know, there was as good a chance they were going to win as the United States. So that was the big impact of the Dream Team, no doubt about it. Well, this has been great. Uh, I got two podcasts back in 2020. The Dream Team tapes came out. And then uh, right now, just in the process of dropping episodes for Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team, uh, you can find that, I assume, any anywhere you get podcasts, right? Yeah, it's an iHeart production, but the other day somebody asked me about it. I just Googled and up it, up it came. So yeah. it's not a paid, you know, it's not a paid uh, type of thing like some of the podcasts. So you yeah. can hear it. Yeah, I listened to it on Apple Podcasts, so uh, you should be able to find them. Great stuff and go back and listen to the original, uh, the Dream Team tapes as well. Uh, lots of books out there. I said lots, a few books out there uh, from 
Dream Team, seven seconds or less. Golden Days, that's about California, right? Uh, yeah, it's about kind of, I sort of looked at Jerry West as back in his playing career in L.A. and then followed him through to when he was an executive at Golden State and talked about kind of the parallels in the game and the differences uh, in the game. So I did a book on the Celtics, too, back in 1991 called uh, Unfinished Business, which I believe is available in Braille or something. But uh, no, it's on Kindle. <laughs> it's a Kindle. It's a Kindle book now. So Okay. Awesome. Well, Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. It means a lot. Uh, you uh, you were everything I'd hoped you'd be and more. So thank you so much. And uh, people keep up with you. You're on Twitter uh, at uh, is it J McCollum 12? At, at McCallum 12. McCallum 12. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on Twitter there as well. Anything else coming out other than the, the podcast right now that people should be looking for? No, my God, that's enough right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Jack McCallum, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it, was, it was really fun. Okay. Thank you, Vince. All right. Thank you for tuning in to today's Sports Stove Podcast. A huge thank you to Jack McCallum, and uh, what a fun interview that was with him. We want to thank our sponsors as well, Blue Coolers. They have been called by some the Yeti Killer, and it's about that time of year. We've got camping season coming up, fishing season, all those kinds of things. And you might need a new cooler, so why not find the best uh, cooler quality from Blue Coolers at a more affordable price than the other leading companies? You know who I'm talking about. Go to Blue Coolers and get yourself a brand new cooler. They've got these 55-quart coolers. They keep ice for 10 days. And with that, they also uh, have this uh, uh, five-star ratings. They've got the warranty with them as well. So there is a link in the podcast notes where you can click and go to Blue Coolers. That way they know that we sent you. We also thank Skull Candy. They've got earbuds, uh, stereos, speakers, headphones, all kinds of stuff there for you. You've heard of them. Great quality, affordable prices as well. And again, if you go to the podcast notes and click on the link there, they'll know that we sent you that way. Make sure you go and show some support to those who support us, Blue Coolers and Skull Candy. I uh, hope that you are subscribed. If you go ahead and do us a favor, rate and review. This is an excellent interview with Jack McCallum, so please share it so that other basketball fans can hear it as well. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and until next time, we'll see you around the sports stove.